Our scripture is Matthew's account of the triumphal entry of Christ, which is the exact week before Christ's resurrection. We call it Palm Sunday. And here now the narrative. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The theme of Jesus' first sermons were the same as John the Baptist preached. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus said this with great confidence because he knew it to be a true thesis. He himself is the king. He knew the time had come. The days of fulfillment were upon us. Everything that the prophets had talked about for centuries was to begin to reach their fulfillment, all in Christ. In what Christ would say and in what Christ would do, the fulfillment would take place. Throughout his ministry, especially during a concentrated period of time, Jesus taught them in parables. And most of these parables were about one thing, the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom, it's small beginnings, but it's rapid rise to greatness. The preciousness and the uniqueness of the kingdom. The ethics of the kingdom. Over and over and over, the cost of the kingdom. He would tell the people about the kingdom. Now he's coming to the end of his ministry. His hour is drawing nigh. He's one week away from the time when he will be crucified, buried, and raised. And he does something here that's kind of unusual. Jesus sort of sets the stage 
So many things you read about in the life of the Lord. He's going here. He's going there. He's among the people. Things happen. People approach him. He heals people. He does his ministry. He sits and teaches them. He's at the seaside. He's on the mountain. A lot of things are happening and it's almost like it has a natural flow to it. But this event is a setup. Jesus is going to great pains to create a scene as though he's setting a movie set. And the scene is a remarkable scene indeed. He's going to set the scene of the triumphal entry of Israel's king into the city of Jerusalem through the gates, through the throng of people and taking and making his way to the temple, which is seen as the throne of God. And he's going to be very, very careful how he sets this scene. He's going to use the imagery that God's people who understand their Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, will recognize. He's going to be mounted upon a unique animal. You go back in Israel's history and you'll see that all of King David's sons rode upon a mule, (laughs) a mule. The mule is the offspring of a horse and a donkey. It's a unique animal. It's sterile. It does not reproduce itself. But you have to have a horse, a steed, mighty steed, and a donkey to bring forth this offspring, this unique animal, mules. And the Bible tells us that King David's sons all rode on mules. In fact, the great demonstration of this was when King Solomon, when his mother Bathsheba was trying to campaign to get him to be the one to be on the throne instead of Absalom or the other sons that Absalom had killed and all of the others, the competition among David's wives and his, and his sons for the throne of David. The signification of putting Solomon, Shalom, the Prince of Peace, upon the throne was to first put him on his mule. Solomon was placed on David's mule. And there everybody knew that he was the anointed. He was the one that was to be the king of Israel. This is speculation on my part. And those of you know that I love from time to time to remind you this is not necessarily scriptural, but it is something that I think is fun to speculate about. You remember the first king of Israel, King Saul. You remember what his occupation was? His father, Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, was a keeper of mules. In fact, it was the donkeys that had gotten out that were very necessary for that trade for him. The donkeys had escaped, and it was Saul and his men who were chasing and trying to find this little herd of donkeys when he ran upon Samuel. And he was anointed then to become the king. And Saul was not expecting that privilege. And he was reluctant to take upon him. But Samuel insisted and Samuel anointed him. And Samuel stayed with him and prayed with him and ministered to him until the Spirit of the Lord fell upon him. And Saul became the king of Israel. And he prophesied with the prophets. Is not Saul named among the prophets? The old donkey had a history in Israel. Remember the prophet Balaam? 
A good prophet, by the way, who prophesied and who was a seer and who had powers that God had given him to minister to the people was hired to draw away and to curse God's people. And he was on his mission when the humble donkey on which he was riding refused to move. And even though he cursed and smote the donkey, (laughs) the donkey wouldn't move. And I love that passage in the New Testament said the Lord speaking through the mouth of the donkey forbade the madness of the prophet. That's a useful ministry. Forbading, forbidding the madness of the prophet. Oh, that the Spirit of God would come and lift the veil of the prophets in our own day that they may see the glorious truths of the Word of God and proclaim the gospel with a lucidity and a clarion call that we don't hear too often. If God would just forbid them from spending all their time on other subjects and never getting around to the message that Jesus preached, and that is the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. And the people recognized it for what it was. They saw Christ coming. But instead of being mounted upon the great white mule and entering to the gates of Jerusalem in a regal fashion and in a fashion of victory and splendor, here in his first advent, Jesus is riding the colt, the foal, the little one. He is humble. And the people recognize this as they begin to cry out in their adoration of what they were seeing. They recognized this was the son of David. This was the rightful heir to the throne. This one riding upon this little animal was the one who God was sending to them in a very special way. And they were reminded of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Certain things in the Bible strike me from time to time. And one of the things that strikes me is how tender and how often the gospel comes to the women, to the women folk, the tenderness. As I was kind of reviewing a little bit back through the scriptures about Samuel and Saul, I read the prayer of Hannah. And Hannah called upon the Lord and pleaded with the Lord. And it was time and again when she recognized the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the greatness of God more than you hear anywhere else. There's more doctrine in Hannah's prayer than there are recorded in Eli's priestly ministry in the book of 1 Samuel. It's to the women. It's to the daughters It's to the daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem. Here is your king coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That would be where we would stop normally because that's the extent of the quotation in our text. But listen to the next verse. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
The coming of Christ is not just to conquer, although we'll see in just a moment it is that, but it is to end the warfare, to end the battle, to end the struggle. He's going to put an end to all of the struggle and end of all of the the unrighteousness and the violence and the wickedness on earth. He will come and He will speak peace, shalom to God's people. And that is the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Notice everything in the text before that was Zion, Jerusalem, Ephraim, all references to God's ancient people. But the gospel that is preached doesn't stop with Israel. It goes to the nations. He will rule. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a universal kingdom. This is an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. This is a kingdom that has incredible import far beyond the little nation of Israel in that ancient day. Humble, lowly, quiet, small, suggestive, almost veiled, but yet open enough to us to see it. Jesus knows there's work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. Jesus knows that there is a thing that must take place before He will bring all of this to pass. And that is His atonement. That is His sacrifice. The thing that the people are are calling out about and declaring is a line from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're saying. That's the heart of a verse, of a hymn a hymn that was sung on special occasions in Israel, a hymn that was sung by Jesus and His disciples when they left the Lord's Supper and the upper room and went out into the Kidron Valley to the the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and then was betrayed. And listen to the whole stanza, if you will. Psalm 118, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter into them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejection of the cornerstone, the rejection of the one that God had placed in Israel to be their foundation stone was done in these days. It was between the triumphal entry of Christ and the trial of Christ that Christ was betrayed. It was during that time they put together the plot, finished the plot. They'd been working on it for three years. They finished the plot to have Jesus arrested There were times when they wanted to, but they wouldn't because of the people and this popularity. They finally found a place and a time in the middle of the night when they could seize him. 
And Jesus knew that he would have to undergo this ordeal. And this was the time in which Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, and all of the establishment of the party in power there in Jerusalem was rejecting the very one that God had sent to be their salvation. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, in the sense that we can't hardly believe this twist of events. We can't hardly understand this. And it's in this context that the next verse arises. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We say that all the time on Sunday. We say, this is the day the Lord has made. Could be that any day is the day the Lord has made. But the day of Scripture is the day of Christ's execution. The day of Christ's atonement. The day that Christ was yielded up and given up for us. That's the day that the Lord has made. He had fashioned a day, marked it on the eternal calendar, that there would be a day, it'd be a Passover. It would be a day when Christ would die for the sins of his people. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's why I read that extra verse or two in there. Because Jesus went from the triumphal entry down the avenue, but then he went to the temple. He went to the place of God's abode. He went to the place where he himself would fulfill every single scintilla of imagery that was in that place. He would be the mercy seat. He would be the blood. He would be his blood that would be sprinkled on it. He would be the one to rent the veil. And on and on we can go with the imagery of what was going to happen in Jesus' finished work and that temple. And the Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. The light is the opening of understanding that we can see these things. And then finally, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is the time when the supreme sacrifice is going to be made. It's not an accident that the scripture says to us that they brought Jesus bound to Pilate because that was the symbol of the binding of the sacrifice to the altar so that the throat could be slipped and the blood shed and the death die when the life of the flesh and the blood. This is all speaking of the atonement of Christ and His, and His coming and salvation. Let me close, if you'll let me, with one more passage of Scripture. And here I'm just trying to race forward. Here I'm trying to move it along. It is in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. The symbol in the ancient world in Israel was, of course, the riding of the king upon the mule. But the symbol in the pagan world and in the universal world of that day was that of the Caesar. The conquering Caesar would, roll, would, would ride through the gates of triumph on a great white steed, showing that he was the ruler and the sovereign over not just Rome, but every province and every nation of the entire world of that time. So the imagery in the first century is the imagery of the conquering Caesar on a great white steed, not a little animal, but a magnificent animal. 
And not coming speaking peace, not coming saying tender words like come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not saying believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. Not saying over and over that they should come to him that they might have eternal life. Not pleading with them to repent. Not pleading with them to come to the fountain of living water, to eat of the bread of life, to partake of the tree of life. But a whole different scenario. Totally different. But this is where it's headed. And let me just read it by way of suggestion to you this morning. This is Revelation. You know what we're looking at. The imagery, the vividness that God unveiled things to John. Then I saw heaven opened. And when heaven opens, something incredible is about to be revealed. You see it in the book of Ezekiel over and over and you see it in the prophets. When heaven opens, we're getting a picture of what God wants us to really know. You may ignore some of the symbolism. You may not understand some of the typology. You may not catch on to some of the subtleties of historical prophecy. But don't miss this. This is visual aid to the fullest extent. And listen to the description that John saw. Then I saw the heaven open and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it as called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What is this saying? This is saying that now he comes to judge the peoples of the earth. He comes to give righteous judgment. He comes to make war. He has in his mind slaughter of those, as Paul says, that Obey not the gospel. He's coming now in flaming fire and in vengeance to vindicate his people who've been persecuted, who've been beheaded, who have been ostracized, who have been martyred down through the centuries. He's come now to uphold them and to strike out at their enemies, the vile, the godless, the atheist, the antichrist. Every one of those that's been fighting against Christ for generations now we'll see a different Christ. Not just Jesus riding lowly upon the little animal, offering and bringing and establishing salvation, shedding his blood for their sins. But now there's a different connotation for blood. The scripture says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is not his blood. This is the blood of the unbeliever, the scoffer, the doubter. This is the blood of the people that have, that have mocked him and used his name as a curse word. And upon him is the ineffable name. He is the true God, the same one that appeared to Moses in the bush. And throughout history, he himself, when he was with us, said, Repent, or you will likewise perish. When he preached the kingdom of God, talked about his kingship, he was always, Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn from your wicked ways. Change your mind. Change your whole mindset. And turn to me. You've had ample opportunity. 
Your lifetime has come and gone. The summer is over. The harvest is past. And we're not saved. You've had warning all your life. Your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had warnings all their life. Faithful preachers of the gospel have stood in pulpits and in fields and in homes and in prisons, nursing homes as people breathe their last few hours, preaching the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a day, there is a time when it will be eternally too late to come to Christ, to believe on Him. And this is the moment when the sky is open and He comes with myriads of His angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God or obey his gospel. And that's what it's saying here. And his, 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 his eye is like a flame of fire. That's a picture out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Isaiah. But it also shows that it is the lamp of justice shining upon him. Everything God does is just and righteous. And when Jesus comes in this context, it will be a true and righteous, a faithful act of God. It will not be caprice. It will not be God just throwing a temper tantrum. It will not be God just not acting in accordance with his, with his love and His mercy. You've been warned. Haven't you heard of the flood? When God wiped out the whole population, save one family? He's the same God today. The same God for all eternity. And He will come as a king with His righteous judge. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems are spoken of in the book of Revelation. Some creatures have seven crowns, some have ten. But Jesus has many, an innumerable. He's the, he wears the crown of every kingdom. He wears the crown of every family, of every ethnic group, of every nation. There's nothing that is outside his authority and his sovereignty. Christ is. What he says he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The robe is dipped in blood, is drenched in blood. And this imagery, by the way, comes out of Isaiah 63. And there's several other references in the Old Testament of this, this notion of God as a warrior just splattered in the blood of his enemies. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, often called the rod of iron, the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God comes out of the mouth with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is not capricious anger. This is God bringing justice, pure, right judgment upon the whole population. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a title that the prophet Daniel had assigned to Christ. Several centuries before, Jesus came in humble. But one day he will come powerful 
and every eye shall see him. And the blood on that occasion will not be his shed blood on the cross, but it will be the blood of those that have been his enemies. Have you too long ignored the serious, eternal implications of the kingship of Christ? When I look around and I listened to Tommy pray a few moments ago and he enumerated some of the awful sins and depravity and tragedy of our generation, I think if God doesn't come in judgment upon our generation, he probably owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. He probably ought to go back and rethink his judgment in the flood because we have thought of more deviations and more abominations than are even listed in the scriptures. And I'm afraid that it's going to wax worse and worse and worse. The downgrade that I've seen in our own culture alone in my short lifetime teaches me that sin is getting worse and worse. And sinners are getting harder and harder and more defiant. They don't mind using Jesus' name as a curse word. What are they going to do when they see his name on his, on his thigh? When he's riding the great white steed of the conquering warrior. And when he comes to rescue, I mean rescue. When he comes charging into this awful sinful world in time and on this planet to rescue that small group of believers who have undergone the persecution, who have suffered, who have held to his name in spite of the ridicule they get from everyone else and who have loved the Lord in spite of everything, who've, who have not been with of the world but have been with Christ, who's taken God's view on one issue after another instead of the popular view. That remnant of faithful believers will be just like those poor captives are when they see the Marines come charging in to rescue them in those hostage situations. They will look up and they will see him and they'll say, finally, we've been longing and waiting for our Savior to save us and to destroy our enemies. Which group do you imagine you'll be in when that day comes? Will you be going about your worldly life? Or will you be among that remnant, waiting, longing, hoping for your rescuer, your savior, your vindicator, your exonerator, your redeemer to come? Oh, I... I hope God will just put me in and keep me in that group that longs for His coming.